Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, uh, our weekly, I call it excursion, into the world of achievement and achievers, uh, where we focus on uh, people who've overcome obstacles and uh, challenges to achieve in life. We try to focus on their perspective, their attitude, uh, how they react to th obstacles and problems and challenges. And uh, somewhere along the line, we uh, get into uh, just tenacity, because a lot of time in life is just not giving up uh, more so than anything. Now, a couple of quick things. Uh, I'm excited about our guest this evening, uh, Mark Blacksell. Uh, Mark, uh, I believe, educated young man, and uh, he's done a lot in the world of uh, finance, uh, in the corporate world. Uh, he has a story to tell uh, about, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about autism because uh, if most of you are like me, we all know someone, uh, some kid uh, who have been impacted by that most of the time. And it's it's a kind of like a mysterious uh, type of symptom in a way. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, Mark has been uh, personally impacted by it. Uh, him and his family. So I'm just looking forward to talking to him about that and just all the great things he's doing in his career. Now, uh, before we get started, uh, remember, uh, go out to LaceyJohnson.com, subscribe, uh, like, uh, click the notification bell, uh, buy some merchandise from our online store, and contribute to the uh, program uh, as you see fit. And so we really appreciate all your support. But uh, we're going to get started uh, this evening, and I'm going to bring on our guest, uh, Mr. Mark Blacksell. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, uh, Mark. Hey, Lacey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've given you a nice little build-up here. Uh, I uh, One of the things I didn't talk about with my audience was just the Olympics. I didn't even know the Olympics was going on this year, but uh, we'll do that another day and another time. Uh, we didn't talk about some of the police killings that happened here in Minneapolis and the whole cancel culture, but that's for another show. Since I have you on here, I respect your time. Let's, let's just jump right into it. Uh, so, Mark, uh, where were you born and raised? And give us some background before we get into your achievements. Give us some family background and what shaped you. Uh, growing up uh, that would have well, predicted what you've done. All right. Um, I, I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, actually Princeton, New Jersey, uh, was the oldest of four kids. My parents um, moved there. My dad went to college at, uh, at Princeton and loved the town. Uh, he worked in New York most of his career, and so he mm -hmm. commuted all the way from Princeton to Manhattan which was a long way to protect his kids uh, in the country. Princeton's not really the country anymore. It's all developed. But back when I grew up, it was. And yeah, I, I uh, born and raised, I ended up going to college in my hometown. Was, uh, uh, you know, Princeton's a great school. It was a great school. But I was, I, I enjoyed my family. I had a great family life. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned your dad worked in New York. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you said your dad went to Princeton also, right? 
He did. Yeah. And so what, did two what, of my siblings. So we and, were all oh, kind you're of a Princeton family. family. Uh, yeah. What type of what type of work did your dad uh, does your dad do? Uh, well, he passed away young. Okay. He, he died when he was uh, 58. Um, uh-huh. But he was in. Uh, he worked for a bank for a long time. He was in finance. Uh, worked in investment banking later. Okay. Okay. And how old were you when your dad passed away? I was 28. Okay. And that must have been kind of tough. Uh, I always uh, compare myself, try to keep things in context. Uh, I think I was 46 when my mom passed and older when my dad passed. And uh, I tell everybody, it didn't hit me as hard as it probably would have, except I met kids in college who who didn't know who their mom was because their mom died before. Uh, they were old enough to remember how how, how did that impact you? Because uh, I know that that's that's, that's a very impactful uh, life experience. So how did that impact you? Uh, it was rough. You know, our dad was a hero, a great great dad. Worked hard. You know, um, then he got sick. He got cancer. He was fifty, and it it took a while. He fought hard to to live. He did every advanced treatment he could find um but ultimately it was too much um, but we all missed him uh, he was the rock in many respects and my you know, my mom was great too uh she passed uh, about 10 years ago um oh, okay the two of them were yeah well once again i'll throw my two cents worth in on that one i i tell everybody once both of my parents passed uh that was another big a life milestone that changed my whole outlook on life and stuff like that. So uh, my belated condolences on that. Now, uh, were you planning on attending Princeton all the time when you were growing up? Because uh, that's your family's uh, personal college. Well, you know, I grew up in the town. We went to the football games. There were all sorts of activities in, uh, you know, back then, Ivy League football was maybe a little bit bigger deal than it is today. Although, who knows? Um, there were I was in a acapella singing group in college, and I knew I they were fun, and I wanted to do it. So there was a whole life of the university that I felt sort of connected to, and my dad was connected to. I had some other options to go to other schools, but. Um, Right. Yeah, I, I felt such a bond. The thing I did say that I would do is that I would get out of town every summer. So I got okay. a summer job, you know, all kinds of different places. So I, I would get to experience life away from my hometown. Well, now you mentioned something that I just can't skip over. You mentioned, I never heard the phrase, Ivy League football was a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a I'm a pretty long term sports fan. I'm trying to I'm I'm scratching my brain, searching the deepest there recesses the of my memories, trying to remember was Ivy League football ever a big deal? Yeah. I know you can put a few people in the pros, but well, well, what do you mean by Ivy League? When Ivy League football was a big deal, I can't remember any of that. Well, before. first of all, Princeton and Rutgers played the very first game of American football. Okay, it was a big deal back then. Okay, good, it was good, a big good. deal. Yes, we invented the game, and and then you know, I mean, Dick Kazmaier won the Heisman in 1949, so that, that was when my dad graduated. So it was yeah. it was in the 40s. I'm not sure, but 
And then it was, and then it began to be less competitive. I will acknowledge that. Okay. Well, the one thing I do remember, this might've been a little bit before your time about Princeton, of course, is in sports is Bill Bradley. Yes. And the college all American uh, went on to become a senator. Yeah. Final four. I think, I think I remember, and like I say, I, I got a pretty good memory in sports. He might have scored forty some points in that final four game. I think I, I forgot that, but I know he did him up I, in the was, tournament. He was sort of my childhood hero. You know, he yeah. went to Princeton in the '60s, and he was the scholar athlete role model that you know mm-hmm. I you know I aspired to be in some respects. Yeah, and he went on to win championships with the New York Knickerbockers. They beat my Lakers a couple of times. You mentioned uh, a scholar-athlete. What sport did you participate in? I played – well, high school I played uh, football, uh, hockey, and baseball. And then uh, when I went to Princeton, one thing they had there was – I'm not a large man. I was – you know, right now I'm probably 180 pounds or something like that. That's more than I should be. Wow, more than all of us. In the 160s. And so they had a, a, a sport called, then it was called lightweight football. Then they called it sprint football. You had to be 158 pounds two days before the game. And so I played that for four years. Princeton. Oh. It was a varsity sport. Oh, one of those things. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. played Army, little... Navy, Cornell, Penn, Rutgers. It was sort of an East Coast. Okay. Thing. So uh, what did you major in at Princeton? Mark? I majored in public and international affairs. Uh, And why would someone major in public and international affairs? What are they planning on being when they say, I'm a major in public and international affairs? What did I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) What did you want? I didn't know. You You have to keep in mind, I'm a techie kind of guy. I'm an English major too, so it's not like I can ask me that. Uh, But uh, why would someone major in that, except out of love? But explain to me. What went into that uh, well, choice? At, at Princeton, they had a, uh, a school, and they've actually uh, changed the name of the school. Back then, it was the Woodrow Wilson School. Oh, yeah. And, okay. it was, uh, and they had an undergraduate major, and there were some good things about that. One is you could take a course almost anywhere. You could right. take economics or politics or history or sociology, and that would be part of your major. Uh, and then they had a thing called policy conferences. Uh, and so it was... You know, I, I was more of a broad vision, mm-hmm. academic type. I liked mm-hmm. taking all kinds of courses. I didn't want to go to, I, I liked economics a lot. I, I ended up being a business guy and that seemed like a reasonable thing to do, but I didn't want to do economics a hundred percent. I loved mm-hmm. history. I loved, you know, thinking more broadly about things. And, and so the Woodrow Wilson School let me do that. Okay, and Woodrow Wilson uh, is an interesting uh, president, too. And you mentioned that uh, the place used to be named after Woodrow Wilson. They changed his name. And I do know that he has some things in his past that can really get you in trouble nowadays. Yeah, I do know that he did some things with uh, during the World War Two time, fr- World War One uh, oh, time yeah. frame. And he was very involved in trying to bring, bring peace to the world and things like that. So I, I guess where I'm getting to, did they change his name? Be- uh, he was canceled. Yeah. Uh, right. He was canceled. Right. He said some things that in the context of the day were right. 
certainly not outrageous, but would be judged as racist right. today. Right. right. No, I was never a great fan of Woodrow Wilson, but I think he was canceled. I mean, I, I would be critical of him for different reasons. He was an elitist, right. uh, uh -huh. very openly so. And he thought uh, that, uh, and I think that's what led to the comments that were racist because he was very much a proponent of education and right. uh, and the educated elite running things. Right, right, and, right. Which, I, you know, I think is wrong. I'm more of a populist by personal belief, but that was the nature of his belief system. And, uh, and he used it, he was, uh, and so the League of Nations was his invention. He right. was the uh -huh. original right. globalist. Yep. Um, yep. yep. And if you politically don't believe in globalism as a model of governance, you know, you're not going to like Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. And that's why I don't like Woodrow Wilson. I right, think, right, right. It has right. led, that kind of thinking is the core of, right. you know, global elitism, which I don't support. Uh, okay. But along with that, back in the late 19th century, early 20th century would come, you know, a, a view of the African-American population as somehow not part of the elite. Right, right. And so I think he probably said some things. I honestly haven't researched what he said that got him canceled. But well, uh, people who know me and for me with this uh, podcast and what I do, what other people think about me, uh, other, I, I never put much stock into it. And people are free to think whatever they want, including Woodrow Wilson. Now, the question I have for you, and uh, I would not ask anyone who was not an Ivy League graduate this type of question, but Woodrow Wilson, was he not also behind the president when the Federal Reserve came into being yes. and the yes. uh, individual income taxes? And so he, that federal yeah. that might be more dangerous I <laughs> agree than, with other, you. That's, than that's other stuff. More other stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, all, yeah. You know, the Federal Reserve System, income tax, the League of Nations, yep. you know, the permanent government. You know, yep. uh, he wanted to get us into World War One. Uh, yep. you know, so, you know, those were the kinds of things that you could criticize Woodrow Wilson for, and I do. Right, and and, and I, I'm a uh, I study wars, you know, I, and uh, the fact that he wanted to get us into World War Two. Uh, I was recently listening to a lecture where, well, I mean, most of these wars, you got somebody wanted us to get us get us into that it, even FDR. Uh, he basically provoked the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor. I haven't dug into that totally yet, but I, you know, I just like reading stuff. So, and I have heard some other things about, you know, Australia knowing ahead of time, and we having cables and stuff like that. So, uh, we can always, I think, uh, be uh, how does I put this led into wars. That's that's probably one of the easiest things to get us to do. And for those of you out there who are familiar with. Uh, the father of propaganda, Edward Bernays, go out and read up on some of this stuff and find out how easy it is to get us into wars. Okay, so uh, moving on. Uh, so you majored in public and international or whatever that is. And uh, <laughs> if I was your dad, I'd be wondering what you're going to do with that. I'm, I'll, I'll be thinking I'm, I'm going to have to take care of this guy. I'm going to have to be sending him money for the next 10 years. But, of course, I say the same thing about my older son who's in the acting and yeah, he's taken care of himself all his life. So, uh, but where I'm getting to, you after uh, graduating from Princeton, I think you started a co corporate career, and somewhere in there, you decided to go back to Harvard, 
and get your master's of business administration. So tell us a little bit about your corporate career and the decision uh, somewhere along the line to uh, go back to Harvard Business School and get your MBA. Well, I knew when I left college, I wanted to get a graduate degree of some kind. Um, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a doctor. And, you know, what that left was sort of by process of elimination was business school. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to business school either. Um, so uh, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, honestly, with my life in college. Uh -huh. I graduated without a job, although I was interviewing up in Boston for some consulting jobs. I looked at New York and Manhattan and mm -hmm. uh, finance jobs because that's what my dad had done. And, you know, the one, the jobs I might have taken, I didn't get an offer. The ones that I got an offer, I didn't want to take. Um, and so, I, and I was struggling with working in Manhattan, which was kind of a rough place back then. Oh, um, yeah, I remember that. And, yeah. and so I applied to, to Harvard Business School. It was the only grad school I applied to. They accepted me, but they said, we'll accept you after you, you can come if you have two years of work experience. So they call that a deferred admission. They don't do that as far as I know anymore, but that was a thing they did at the time. Uh, and so I had two years that I needed to, to work before. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go to Harvard um, uh, Business School. And then I ended up getting a job in Boston for the Boston Consulting Group. And um, I, I moved up to Boston, which I thought was a great city. I loved the city. Uh, it was walkable, smaller scale, uh, you know, a, a lot of history. And yeah. so I moved up. Worked for the Boston Consulting Group for two years, went to Harvard Business School, and then decided to go back there. And I stayed there for another another uh, 20, 20 plus years. Wow. Uh, yeah, Boston is a wonderful town. Uh, we, we, we've talked before, and I'm more of an East Coast kind of uh, person, New York, Boston, D.C., Philadelphia, Baltimore. Uh, I love those East Coast cities with history and character. Yeah. Uh, 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 in them. Uh, so, and, and, oh, and by the way, another story. I believe it or not, I had the best uh, seafood gumbo ever in Boston. And I think, I, and the place is no longer there. I, I think it was a place called the Kingfish. I think something like this, Kingfish House or something like that. Okay. And uh, it was owned by Chef uh, Todd. And it was just the most, and I think it was by Quincy Station. Does that ring a bell? Because Quincy I, Market, yeah. Quincy Market, be. yeah. That's where yeah. it was. So uh, surprisingly, it wasn't New Orleans. So uh, really love Boston. I think you're right. It's a smaller uh, New York kind of a way. Have a same, lot of the same thing. Oh, and by the way, I, when I was mentioning East Coast type of towns, I forgot to mention Chicago, which is another beautiful. Well, all these towns used to be. We don't. I haven't been to them since the crazies came out and. They start defunding the police and all that kind of craziness. So, okay, so you got your MBA. Just, just a quick question on MBAs. And uh, I have a little corporate experience, and uh, I probably shouldn't come at it this way, but you know, the the the, the managers and people I knew with MBAs, I used to sometimes wonder what they're teaching them in MBA school. Don't look like, <laughs> look like they're teaching them anything valuable, and. Uh, well, at least one thing they didn't teach that appeared to me was people skills. But what what did you, what what do people what did you get out of your MBA uh, uh, study? So maybe three of the main things that you get out of it. I know there's a lot of theoretical stuff and 
the people I got, I know with MBA, they talk a language that I've never heard before a lot of times. <laughs> Is it to teach you a language that we've never heard of? What was, what was the main? Honestly, I think particularly it's a two-year program, and I'm not sure I need it all two years uh, right. to learn what I took away. But that's the first semester was mm -hmm. really one of the most exciting educational experiences I ever had. And the reason was the whole model of teaching was the case method. Mm -hmm. So every day you read you know, two or three cases and you, you studied them. And, and it was a situation where a business manager was faced with a problem and had to make a decision. Right. Um, and you use different tools to pick, you, know, you had marketing courses, so there were marketing problems or you had, there was sort of a math oriented course where they called it managerial economics and you had to use mathematical analytical tools or there was an, an HR human resources type of question. But in every case, you, you had to read about a situation and come in and have a, an opinion on what to do. Right. And I call that kind of decision-making boot camp, you know, right. okay. five times, you know, uh, gosh, you know, 13 times a week. It was, you know, two or three cases a day. Uh, you had to make a decision. And so it, it was like exercise of the brain. Right, 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 right. And it was also, you know, college was a lot of philosophy. You read a book, you talk about it. Everything seems inevitable, you know. And there's something about the case method that says, you know, you have free will. Uh, the decisions that you make affect the outcome of life and the world. And I was inspired by that. I, I felt like I took a lot away from it. And yeah, I think you'd learn that eventually in the business world, but I, I felt like I got up to speed much more quickly in terms of taking a big, a big picture view of problems and, and, and having a view that you need to act, you have an obligation right. to act. So it kind of reminds me of, and you're familiar with uh, Albert Einstein's thought experiments where he just so now you think things through, look at different angles and things like that. So that sounds like a great thing. Uh, so uh, you mentioned your family earlier. And how many children do you have again, Mark? I have two daughters. Two daughters. Uh, okay. that, at, at about that time in my life, I, I got married and started working on a family. And that was when I graduated from business school was the time I got, uh, I married my, I got married. Okay. And I am familiar with your uh, writings and your book on autism. And I did, we did talk about the fact that what got you on that particular, in that particular subject area was an experience with one of your daughters. Why don't you share that experience with uh, the audience about your daughter and how that motivated you uh, to uh, dig into some things and uh, the outcome of that. But let's first start with uh, your sure. daughter and what, well, what happened. There's there. a little bit of a prologue there, Lacey. I, uh -huh. you know, my ex-wife and I worked really hard to have kids. We struggled, uh, didn't we? And we had a lot of, we went through infertility treatments and we had a lot of, you know, failed efforts. Uh, 10 times we went through in vitro. Uh, we had 10 independent miscarriages and ultimately we had two beautiful girls um my youngest girl was actually a twin 
Uh, and we know that because we saw in the ultrasound there were two heartbeats. And then the next time we went in, there was only one, oh, wow. which was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, pretty rough. Um, but then she was born and she was great. You know, both girls were beautiful and, you know, lively. Um, and my oldest is 30 and lives in L.A. and, you know, is brilliant and gorgeous and talented. Uh, my youngest is 26 and she was just on track uh, in the same way. Uh, and then when she was between her first and second birthday, she began to slip away from us. Mm -hmm. And and then by the time she was two, it was clear something was up. And she got a diagnosis of autism when she was two years, nine months. And what was your uh, initial reaction uh, as a father? Well, you know, I had, um, I, I was working my tail off, honestly, in that time. And I look back and I feel badly that I was not more on top of things. Um, mm -hmm. my, my wife at the time knew that there was something up and she was working on it. And so we finally got, you know, uh, we went through the process and it was the, the, I remember it was a Friday before Labor Day, 1998. I'll never forget the day. And, and we walked into this, uh, one of the Harvard hospitals um, and the doctor gave us the verdict of the diagnosis, which kind of has taken a crowbar to your head. And I, it was in the middle of the afternoon and I was driving back to work and I remembered reading a little pamphlet that she had given us. And she said, you know, it's very frequently the pattern that the mothers are more aware of what's going on than the fathers are often in denial. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself that that was probably right uh, up to that point and that going forward, I was not going to be that guy. I was going to be a father who fought for my, for my child. Yeah, and so uh, that led you to go out and start doing some research uh, on autism. And, you know, I, I, I've done a little research of my own, too. And I do know children with autism, and I know a little bit about the details of their lives. But uh, I was surprised to find out that originally, and you're going to give us some data here, that it was considered uh, mainly a condition among uh, whites of high socioeconomic uh, means, and now it has transitioned a segued into mainly affecting low income and ethnic minorities. Uh, what did you find out about that? Well, let, let, let's first deal with the uh, frequency of occurrences historically. Tell us uh, so what you found out so what I did, you know, I, we went home and we cried a lot and, uh, and then I, you know, started researching and I did, I worked on two fronts. One is I tried to find the best experts in the world that I could to do everything I could for my, for my little girl. And then I got online, I researched and I read and I read and tried to learn as much as I could. And I found a community of parents that were all dealing with the, the issue that I was and, and long story short, you know, the parents knew their stuff and the Harvard experts didn't. In fact, no everything they told there. me was, huh? I say no surprise there. Yeah, no surprise <laughs> there. Uh, everything they, they told me was wrong. 
they, the, there was an orthodoxy about what autism was and that it was very rare and that it was all genetic and that it was all in the brain and it was and the outcomes were hopeless there was nothing you could really do you should just go through the grieving process and prepare to institutionalize your child at some point mm-hmm. um, and everything i learned from the parents was that that wasn't true and the thing that i learned that most motivated me was uh the numbers were just starting to go crazy um you know they and i because i'm a, i was a business guy and i was analytical in my my work at, in consulting was very focused on analysis of business and analysis of problems and spreadsheets and numbers and models. And I, you know, I was very comfortable with that. And I, I would read the science about time trends and autism and where it varied all over the world. And what was clear to me was that the orthodox view was completely and thoroughly wrong. And the reason it was wrong was that it presumed constant and rare rates. Uh, And what was obvious was that the rates historically had been really low, but they were starting to take off. And there were numbers everywhere in the United States and in other places around the world that were going through the roof. Today, those would look like really low numbers, but for for us back back in in the day, they were just going vertical. and so, you know, what I learned that I boil it down to is that once, once upon a time, the worldwide rate of autism was effectively zero. You look in the history and the literature of child psychiatry, and it goes back for decades and hundreds of years, and you find virtually no mention of a phenomenon called autism. Um, and, then, and then it was discovered back, uh, there was a Johns Hopkins child psychiatry expert who started to see some kids who were all born in the 1930s. And he said, you know, there, you know, since 1938, I have seen uh, you know, a condition in cho- a number of children whose condition differs so markedly from anything seen before that, you know, I'm, I'm compelled to write about it. But he wrote about 11 kids uh, and he published the thing, his article in 1943. And then for a long time, it was sort of a curiosity. Nobody, nobody saw it. Nobody, or, you know, it was very rare. Uh, there was a little corner of the child psychiatry world that was interested in it. And then when they started ever measuring the rates, the, the rates were really low, one in 10,000 uh, plus or minus, depending on which study you looked at. And then around 1990, and my, remember my youngest was born in 1995, the rates started to, to tick up. And that was a phenomenon that the orthodox view of autism could never explain. What it said to me was that something environmental had to be changing in the lives of infants that was causing their development to go off track. Okay. And then you wrote a book, came out of that. And I don't know how you found time to write a book. Why... You know, holding down a job in the world in a consulting company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you did find time to write the book. Uh, I think it's called The Age of Autism. And I think in that book, uh, if I would assume uh, that you took on the orthodox view, uh, that you were anti-orthodox view, which as an aside, you would have been canceled today. Uh, They probably would have... Uh, not let you on YouTube or still get Twitter. Canceled, or... <laughs> <laughs> Facebook. 
Facebook. <laughs> and I want my audience to know, and I have to interject uh, this at this time, we are open to ideas. Our program is about business and education and ideas, and we don't censor ideas. We take them on, and we allow everybody to express their ideas. And uh, anytime we have uh, any guest on the show that you disagree with some of the ideas, you're welcome to be on the show and give your version of it. But Having said that, uh, you you came to certain conclusions or opinions that were not popular. Uh, tell me about that and what you went through. And anytime you take on the establishment or, or orthodoxy, uh, you're you're in for a fight. So, uh, what what was the reaction? What did you what conclusion did you come to? Well, the obvious. And what was it? Well, yeah. the, uh-huh. the question first, Lacey. What's okay, the yeah, question first. that you're asking? And uh-huh. when you see, you know, a hockey stick growth in uh-huh. the rates of something that's affecting your child, the obvious question is what's what changed? What happened? Right. right. Um, and there are and remain many theories. The one theory that I, the one observation I'd make that is most important is uh-huh. it must be environmental. You're not going to see a genetic epidemic. And so whatever we have seen affect so many children now. And the numbers went from one in 10,000 to one in 44 or one in, right. uh, depending on which data source you look at, the number right. varies. But there was one CDC study that came out, you know, uh, just several weeks, you know, a number of weeks ago that said the number was one in 44 for children born in 2010. Right. Um, so you have to, I think that increase obligates our scientific, medical, and public health establishment to ask the question, what's going on? What happened? Um, And and there are many possible environmental explanations, but they have to be environmental. Um, And one of the theories, and it has become controversial, uh, Uh we started with the, you know, uh, a very a much more precise theory and that's what i got involved in was you know there was a preservative in a number of childhood vaccines that contained ethyl mercury uh, which is a very toxic substance and it was contained in relatively small amounts but it but the childhood vaccine schedule increased right around that time right around the time you saw the hockey stick there was an increased exposure in infants to this uh, organic, this ethyl mercury uh, uh, compound. And that was a theory of causation. You know, could that have caused the problem? And I know that the public health authorities were very worried because they had immediately pulled some of the vaccines from the market and then they started phasing out the mercury very aggressively and they had meetings and they wrote internal reports and they did analyses. So they were really concerned that mercury might be the cause, and so was I. Okay, so I'm. Uh, I, I enjoy putting you on the spot a little bit, but I'm gonna put you on the spot. This is a warning. So most of us are familiar with the mercury warnings in fish. Yep. Give us some type of context, uh, if you can, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here of the concern about the mercury level in fish versus the, back then, the mercury level in these vaccines. 
Is that you understand where I'm coming from, Mark? There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, they're all different, you know. When you get when you get into biology and you get into the science, and I went all in because for me, I I felt like I had to vet this theory because uh -huh. if I was going to do something about it, I had to do it very quickly with my small child, right? Um, and so I had to test it. I and, and I, I knew how quickly controversial ideas move through the scientific world and they don't move quickly. And, and so there would be no progress or consensus. And particularly if it was an idea that placed uh, blame on mm -hmm. big companies with a lot of money, uh, it would be rough to, to right. ever demonstrate that that was true. Um, so fish can, you know, in particularly fish that are high on the food chain, uh, mercury accumulates up the food chain and a lot of predatory fish like tuna, uh, swordfish have high amounts, relatively high amounts of what's called methylmercury in their tissue. So if you eat, if you eat too much sushi, you eat too much swordfish, you're going to be accumulating uh, what methylmercury, which is basically mercury with a methyl group attached to it. And, and there's mm -hmm. carbon and hydrogen in that and chemically it's called a methyl um and that's not good for you right you know right. um but you know it, it's not lethal and you know if it's uh, in moderate amounts it goes through your digestive tract there's all sorts of things that protect you from it right uh this preservative in these vaccines was slightly different it's yep. very similar in many respects but it was uh, ethyl mercury and it had just a little bit more carbon and a little bit more hydrogen and so uh it it uh was chemically different and so it was processed differently but it's injected so it gets straight into your right. bloodstream um and then then there's a whole science about how mercury with carbon elements attached to it moves around the body and enters the brain or exits the body and there's just a whole world of science about this problem well, the bottom line is, to me, and, and I know I was kind of mixing apples and oranges there. Uh, the bottom line is mercury is bad for you and it is. anybody, yep. and especially bad for children. Now, how? before I go any further, how's your daughter doing uh, nowadays? And, I, and and for our audience, uh, autism is a spectrum. I mean, that's the low and high end, but uh, give us an idea how your daughter is doing and so she was always diagnosed at the severe end of the spectrum. Um, okay. She's doing okay. She okay. Um, she still is pretty severe, but she's quite smart and she right. very she communicates pretty well at this point. Um, right. Her mother and I worked very hard um, to do all sorts of things. We changed her diet. We gave her you know there were a bunch of alternative therapies of all kinds. Um, and so we sort of threw the kitchen sink at her because there, there wasn't a, a, an alternative view to the orthodoxy. The orthodoxy said do nothing. Parents were all kind of experimenting and with different kinds of what we called uh, biomedical interventions. Um, there is no magic drugs. My daughter's doing pretty well. Okay. If, um, so let me. So if that was going to be disabled mm -hmm. for life. 
right Lacey, and she's in a group home in central massachusetts and she's not living independently she needs oh, you know 24 wow. 7 support yeah it, 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 well a couple of things it is a spectrum you say she's on the severe end of the spectrum and there's another disease uh and help me pronounce this Ars, asperger's Asperger. syndrome asperger's syndrome yeah. and i think they used to have that as separate I think now that they folded it into the ass to the autism spectrum, if I understand that correctly, recently uh, they've uh, changed uh, the criteria kind of in a rolling way. It, it used to be separately described, and then right. in 1994 they folded it into the official uh, definition, and then most recently, I think it was 2013. They changed the whole thing again, and Asperger's exists no longer. It is no right. longer a formal, diet. but but it is kind of part of the, you know, the the cult, the social discussion of autism. Asperger's is, was generally less considered right. less severe, although it can be very severe. Uh, the difference historically was that Asperger's, a child with uh, with Asperger's, would have intact language when they were infants but have the other features of autism, which are uh, asocial uh, behavior and insistence on sameness, perseverative quality. Uh, th those were the three criteria that were sort of historically associated with autism, language delay, social problems, and perseveration. And Asperger's had the, had the two, but language was intact. Okay, and uh, here's the thing. Uh, what would you advice would you give to uh, parents out there who has uh, a child, let's say, on the more extreme end of aspert, uh, of autism? Well, is there any advice that you and your support group would uh, get out to? Because I think there's a lot of parents affected by it. Well, I would say find other parents. That'd be okay. the, because there are a lot of them now and there's a lot of support. There's a lot of groups with um, ideas for therapeutic interventions, uh, dietary interventions, medical interventions. There's often conditions that go alongside uh, the autism. So I would just, it's, it's often, and the one thing we know is it's going up fast. It's gotta be environmental. There's a lot that you can do that can help and it's not all in the brain. Sometimes it's a whole body condition. You've got immunological problems and gastrointestinal problems and dietary problems. And you can do things that can help, very practical things. So that would, and there's a lot of sort of guidebooks and support groups out there that, that, that give, uh, give good, good advice. Well, you and I know, and we talked about it briefly, there are a lot of famous achievers out there who had Asperger slash autism. I'm thinking, at least people theorize they did. Uh, some currently living, some in the past. And I know this is all a guessing game, but uh, you have names out there like Bill Gates and Elon Musk. Uh, currently, I think you're going back in history, uh, you got people like Charles Dickens and very high achievers. Uh, are, are you, uh, what type of uh, credibility, I guess, do you give those? listed those guests that who may have had it and because i mean the bottom line is you can be very talented in a lot of ways and still overcome it if you're on the lower end but 
What's your thought on uh, some of these names that they're throwing around out there? I think that's wrong. Uh, I, I don't think Bill Gates is autistic. There's a yeah. difference, Lacey, between mm-hmm. I don't think so. Either. Go ahead. Uh-huh. An autistic st- uh, diagnosis and right. traits. We've right. always right. had smart, yep. introverted people. You know, scientists by their nature, or scholars by their nature, they read books. They're introverted. They don't, you know, they don't like parties much. That's not the same thing as having a lifelong disability right. where you can't live independently. Right, right. Okay. Uh, that's that's a very good input. Now, I know The Age of Autism is not the only uh, book that you were involved in. You, 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 you were the author of that one. Tell me a, another book out there that, and I've forgotten the name of it, that you were involved in on autism. Uh, I wrote a book, Lacey, called Denial, which was around uh, this phenomenon that really Uh, concerns me, which is that as autism rates have gone from effectively zero to 10,000 to one in 44, and they're still rising, there's no end in sight to the increases. Mm -hmm. Everybody says, oh, well, there's no real, we don't really know why, we're not really concerned why, but the only thing we know is we're doing a better job in the medical community diagnosing the condition, and it's probably just better awareness because there can't be a real problem. And I look at that situation and that belief system and I say, whoa, wait a minute. Every number, every data point, every bit of quantitative evidence that we have about rates shows that they're going in one direction and that's straight up. Right. And, you know, and and there's no way that you can explain that with better diagnosis. Uh, yeah. It's not, you know, some people like to say, oh, well, um, intellectual disability, what we used to call mental retardation, that's declining and autism is going up. So we're just substituting diagnoses. That's not true. I've written some science and published some science that, that shows that that's not true. Uh, some people say, well, it's just Asperger's and we're being, we're including more in the autistic spectrum. No, we're not. And I don't, you know, I, yes, we included Asperger's in 1994, but that's not enough to explain the explosion in rates of the severe form. Uh, the other is, well, they were always there and we just missed them. And that's just, you know, Lacey, that's an absurd argument. You don't miss a, a child with autism. Yeah, you know yeah. that as a parent. Yeah. Um, so all of those arguments are just false, manifestly right. false, and, right. they're, and they're irresponsible to make because if the numbers are going up the way we're seeing we don't we don't have many grown up you know seniors with autism but we have millions of children and those children are going to grow up and their parents are going to die and they're going to be all alone and we're not going to have money to pay for all the services that they'll need and all the support that they'll need so i i wrote a book called denial that basically takes on that perspective that wants to whitewash the problem and tell us that everything's just hunky-dory. And I don't know, I think it was an article you read, and I'm going to get the name correctly here. I wrote it down uh, on autism tsunami, uh, the impact of rising uh, prevalence on the social cost of autism in the United States of America. And I'm just segueing about what you just said. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the economics of cost of autism now and if we look 
in the future when a lot of the parents are gone and, and things like that, uh, the impact of it in the future? Well, if we say, and this is, I, I, I make it kind of concrete, the, mm -hmm. the article that was written in 1943 where Leo Connor discovered autism, uh -huh. he had a case number one, um, a fellow named Donald Triplett. He was born in 1933, I think. Um, and I met him. He, uh, he, last I heard, he was alive and he was doing pretty well. He was living independently, um, but he was, you know, born in 1930. He'd now be, he was in his 80s when I met him. Uh, if he's still alive and I don't stay in touch, uh, he'd right. be in his 90s. Uh, and that would be the age of the oldest individuals in in the world with autism. Uh, and there are not many. And I, you know, we, uh, my co-author and I, we looked up all the 11 cases in the first, in, the, in that first paper, and we found eight of them. And met, several of them died young. Uh, we 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 met two. One was this fellow Donald Triplett, and another one was uh, uh, a uh, a non-speaking man who was living in a group home with intellectually disabled elderly people in northwestern Maryland. And he, his life was he was well taken care of, but he was all alone. Um, and and so those people were out there, but they were very few in number. And now. And, and, and so, and we have data on some of the populations. We have data on the population in California of adults with autism. It's very, very low. Uh, people try to claim that it's higher than we think, but no, you can't find these people. Um, and then we know that the rates in children are, are just enormous. They're right. in some places three, four or five percent rising. Um, and we haven't seen, we haven't seen the peak. Um, and 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 if you then project that population wave forward and that's why i say it's a tsunami it's you know it's going like this and it's gonna you know it's gonna keep going and it, it's straight like that and it's uh you know and each individual with autism ha there, there are social costs to that that don't right. go along with a you know a, a typically functioning person and it goes from special education and higher medical costs when they're young to residential costs and 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 uh day program support when they're older uh lo the lost productivity that parents have when they have to spend all the time taking care of their child the lost productivity of of the adult with autism who is going to be unemployed and and basically not contributing economically to, to to society so all of these are costs and we ran we took that population rate that we see by birth cohort we projected it forward with the growth of population we uh -huh. put uh, you know you multiplied the number of people in each age group by the cost the different kinds of costs that go along with it and you know long story short the model said by 2040 we're crossing about a trillion dollars a year of cost that the rates are, are low now mostly because uh the population is smaller and young and the right. parents are doing a lot of work to take care of them. Right. Uh, but as, as the population is, they grow out and they request as adults, it, the rate, the number crosses a trillion and 24 for 
2040 and by 2060, we're talking on the order of $5 trillion a year in social costs. And I'm assuming some of that cost is for our public school system. And I do know that, uh, generally speaking, and there's some details, that they are really uh, uh, obligated, has the responsibility to educate these children. That's right. And generally speaking, they have the responsibility to uh, bring to bear any services that need to be brought to bear to educate these children. So I'm wondering whether or not our educational budget is reflecting some of these additional services. And I know a lot of these additional services, the money comes from the federal government. So uh, if I if I understand the situation correctly, and that there's going to be a lot of money coming down uh, that's going to have to be allocated to our public school system if those type of responsibilities stay in place. But anyway, uh, go ahead and address. Yeah, uh, no, huge, yeah. huge special education costs. Crowd out you know, other activities in schools, school budgets are swamped with special education costs. A lot of the funding is local. Uh, some comes from, uh, you know, states and federal sources, but a lot of the funding is local. Um, but, and there is an obligation, Lacey, you're absolutely right. It, it, you know, we, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act made it a requirement that we provide services, educational services to individuals with disabilities especially you know including autism right. um, the difference is that when they they age out of the school system and so when they depending on the state whether you turn 21 or 18 or 22 uh, in Massachusetts where my daughter lived when she turned 22 she was in a whole different system that she left the schools um, and then you get into uh, a, a services system where uh, services are not guaranteed they're just provided and you have to become eligible and right. that's a whole different world so now you did some research quite a bit of research and uh, i tend to uh, lean towards your uh, view of the situation uh i mean what were they calling the kids with autism that's on the extreme end I, I, if they had seen it uh, i think they would have been counting it but, but before i go there you mentioned i think it was leon Connell. Leo Connor. Leo Connor. Okay. I'm yeah. Minosa. Uh, and was he the one that you met and that you said discovered autism? That's an interesting word, discovered. But did you say Leo? Leo, Leo was Connor one? was the world's leading expert oh, oh, in child uh, psychiatry. He, okay. he ran the child psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins okay. in the 30s, and he wrote the first textbook. Uh, called Child Psychiatry. It was published in 1935. I have a copy of it somewhere. Uh, there is not a single mention of the word autism. And it, oh, it's okay. a 500, 600 page textbook. Uh, and then because he was the world's leading expert, parents who started to have kids with this condition would find the world's leading expert and they would take him to Baltimore and meet the great man. Uh, and mm -hmm. he met an individual, this was the child that was born in 1933, and his parent, and he was born in Mississippi, and his parents took him all the way up to Johns Hopkins, and Leo Connor saw this kid, and he said, this is not like anything I've ever seen before. And so, and then he began to talk about it with his colleagues, and he, he realized there were some other young children with similar profiles. And so he pulled them all together, he found 11, and he wrote about it. Oh yeah, and, right. And right. that That's was, and he's credited for discovering autism. 
Well, actually, autism discovered him because <laughs> he was the expert. Uh, the parents discovered autism. They found him and he wrote about it. Uh, I can't leave this subject without asking about the basic apparent less occurrence in the people of high socioeconomic situations and how it kind of uh, transferred to greater appearance in people of lower socioeconomic groups and ethnic, ethnic minorities. Yeah. Do you have uh, any thoughts, conclusions, or opinions on why that is and what do you base those thoughts, conclusions, and opinions on? Well, this this initial group, this is an interesting sample, this 11 group, uh, mm -hmm. all the parents were highly educated. They were all white. Uh, they were often professors or doctors. They were, uh, and this is what we wrote about in the age of autism. One was a pediatrician. Uh, others were treating syphilis uh, patients and using mercury in their practice. Others were um, pathologists or working with pesticides, uh, mm -hmm. some of which included this ethyl mercury uh, uh, ingredient. And so the, and the parents were sort of introverted. They, they would, the, they, there was a period where they blamed the mothers uh, that the cause of autism was the refrigerator mother. Uh, and so, because the mothers were sort of uh, professional. They were often, right. you know, had jobs, they were working, they had gone to college, which was not as common in the, in the 30s. So, and the other thing, Lacey, that was fascinating, and if you read the historical literature on prevalence around the world, you know, a lot of it, I, you know, a lot of us, we focus in the U.S. because there's a very clear set of data and it's easier to corral the history, but there, are, there were autism surveys in Japan, and in the United Kingdom and in Sweden. And so they varied over time and the rates varied around the world. Uh, some, somebody decided I'm gonna go look for autism in Africa um, and, and in, the un, in the less developed economies of the world. And what they found was you couldn't find it in Africa. There was no such thing as, uh, oh. as autism in Africa. Uh, there are often there are high rates among the Somali population here in Minnesota, for example. Right. And the, the parents there will tell you there's no word for autism in Somali in their native language. So, right. except uh -huh. there were rare cases of autism in African families, but they were almost universally the children of, of elite parents, people right. involved in uh, global organizations, global corporations, in the government. And so it was a very much a class division, even when you found it in Africa. Um, so so that right. was sort of the, the original picture. Uh -huh. um, and that's changed now. So thinking, I think, thinking logically, uh, you mentioned a comparison. Well, let's, let's, let's take this in order. Uh, you mentioned that this ethylmercury was also being used in like syphilis experiments. 
I think you used the word experiment, uh, study or whatever. Yeah, go, well, syphilis go, study. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, yeah, correct me. Big correct my imp impreciseness when I'm done here. Yeah. Uh, well, what I'm getting to is if that same ethylmercury uh, was being used in, in other areas, were they seeing a similar cause and effect, a spike according to the relative usage of that in these other areas? Ethyl mercury was only used in fungicides. Okay. So one of the things we found was um, that there was this there were these clusters of parents. Some of them were doctors in the greater Baltimore area, um, and some of them were working in with plants and trees. Um, and the one common feature to this group of eleven parents was that you know. They were all in this ethyl mercury ingredient was invented in the late 1920s and commercialized in the 30s. So that was a, kind of our observation was that was consistent with the causal hypothesis that that these organic, you know, that this ethyl mercury ingredient could be good at causing autism. Right. right. Um, syphilis is a whole different story. And we wrote about that in the age of autism at some length. Syphilis was a very horrible disease. It was the AIDS of the 19th century and early 20th century. And what they typically would do would be to treat it with mercury-based products, not ethyl mercury, not organic right. okay, mercury, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. different kinds of stuff. And they okay. would rub ointments on the skin. Um, okay. And often, you know, uh, and, and so the observation was all, some of these families with an early autistic child uh, might have had some kind of occupational exposure to medicinal mercury compounds, not this organic one, but, right. um, but other, other compounds. And, and syphilis was until the invention of penicillin. And by the way, you know, penicillin, you want to talk about medical miracles, penicillin and antibiotics were the greatest invention in the history of medicine. They wiped right. out syphilis, you know, within, years uh, right. of its invention uh, but before that there was nothing to do syphilis you know, syphilis create would never go away it was a chronic condition and often got into the brain uh, and, right. and and eventually killed people there was a controversy about the use of mercury in syphilis and we wrote about that in the age of autism so another question that comes to my mind and we've already talked about these experts and things but what I'm trying to figure out, Mark, and you can explain it to me, uh, these people who are coming up with these treatments involving mercury, uh, I'm assuming at that time most of them uh, knew that that probably wasn't a good, they knew of its, uh, uh, bad, its harm, I'm assuming, in most cases, did they find out about that later? Why would they ever use mercury for any type of medical uh, They uh, used it because if you used mercury, you put it on some kind of bacterium, including syphilis, it, it diminished it. Uh, mercury has properties that kill bacteria. Um, and so it was active. Right. Uh, and anything that's active, you, know, you say, okay, well, a little bit might kill a little bit. Let's give them some more. Uh, mercury for many conditions in the 19th century and the early 20th century was the standard of care, Lacey. They gave it 
out all the time. Uh, and there are many, many uh, illnesses and uh, you know, sicknesses that mm -hmm. you can read about that have have left our medical history and our, our collective consciousness that yeah. were obviously related yes. and, and harm from the drug uh, that, that was being administered. And, you know, and we write about that some in the age of autism. We, there, there, it's a historical view of the use of mercury in medicine, which was just terrible. Uh, and it, it harmed and killed hundreds of thousands of people, I'm sure. I don't know what the, the exact toll is hard to gauge, but it didn't work. It was awful. You know, you're, you're, you should have stayed away from the doctor uh, right. if you had syphilis because you were going to they were going to pour mercury into you and have you drink it and rub it on your skin and have your loved ones rub it on your skin. And it was doing nothing but negative things. So I got a couple of uh, quick items to deal with and then we start wrapping it up out of respect for your time. But a couple of things you mentioned also. Uh, and I've seen, you know, in Minnesota, we've got a large Somali population, and I've seen uh, quite a few uh, young uh, Somalis with evidence of yeah. autism. But you mentioned that uh, it's a lot rarer, I think that's the word, in, in the Somali community, I think you did, in Africa yes. than it is in the Somali community here. And that would tend to, I would think, uh, back up your belief that it's environmental and not hereditary. Yeah. Uh, any, what type of numbers are we talking about as far as, if you, if you know, I, I know you, it's off the top of your head, as far as the difference between the population here versus the population in Africa. And, well, I, I'm going to stop giving you com compound questions, so I, I'll let you answer <laughs> that one first. <laughs> um. You know, we don't, I'm not up to date. If there are studies that have, uh, last I looked, there was not, there was no good data on autism in Somalia, but okay. you know, the world has a way of producing new knowledge and there might be something there. But I know that the studies that were written about Africa uh, back in the sixties and seventies, they couldn't find autism. They, right. they, there was autism here. There wasn't much autism in Africa, except among rare cases of children of, of you know, elite um, citizens of the African countries. Um, in, in Minnesota, they've done some work. Uh, Minnesota is now part of the CDC's official tracking system for autism rates, which is a, mm -hmm. generally a mess, but at least it's a consistent attempt to measure every two years and put a hard number on what the autism rate is based on a sample of locations. And Minnesota has now entered that sample. Before we entered the sample uh, for the CDC, there was concern about autism rates within the Somali community. And they were, you know, raising, you know, <laughs> you know raising concerns, you know, complaining, you know, what's going on here? We don't have autism back home. Uh, and there was a study done by the University of Minnesota. And at the time, the rate of autism in Somali children here in Minnesota was the highest that it had ever been recorded. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's a problem. I, you know, I'm the CFO of, a, of an autism treatment center here in Minnesota, and we have a large Somali population among, among the kids that we serve. Okay, and I'm circling back around. So once again, it seemed to have become more prevalent in poorer 
in ethnic minority communities based upon, once again, your data and research there, do you have some type of plausible explanation as to why that is true? And not that everything can be explained, but... Uh, well, we, we I, I, like I said, I believe in science. I believe in the right. scientific process. I believe in evidence, and we you know, need to scrutinize evidence carefully, including scrutinizing evidence that, you know, where powerful people try to cover up the problem. Right. And uh -huh. I think that's a lot of what we've seen because the CDC doesn't want to find the cause of autism, in my view. They right. just consider it an interesting problem and and they get into uncomfortable questions where, you know, environmental factors play a role and environmental factors are man-made. Um, right. They could be pesticides. They could be food products you know we could be doing different things to our food supply they could be medical interventions and you know one of it's a third rail here is yeah. the role of the childhood vaccination schedule in you know whether or not we've made more kids sick it has that been a contributing factor and we know for a fact that there is a vaccine injury compensation program and we know that many cases have been settled where the, the, the injury that was compensated uh, was neurological and the child was autistic. Right. Um, that's a fact. Um, now, the question then becomes if, if, if vaccination can result in autism, which is the weasel word they use, uh -huh. uh, how much, how often can that connection happen? And we don't know the answer to that question. I know, for example, there are unvaccinated children who have autism. So uh -huh. vaccines can't be 100% of the problem, but it's certainly not zero. Right. And then somewhere in the middle. And, yeah. and then the thing about vaccines is that they would sort of fit the profile. We see autism in every state in the country. We see it in every every ethnic group. We see it all over, um, you know, in rural communities and urban communities. And so the exposure has to be the kind of exposure that's pervasive. Right. It, you know, it can't be one smokestack, one bad manufacturing facility, right. one kind of food. You know, um, it, it would have to be pervasive. Yeah. And, you know, that, that gets us to the issue. And the hypothesis of vaccination is is a meaningful one. So we, we, we're going to start winding down here. I know that the vaccinations are in the news even nowadays. Yeah. Uh, we know that there will always be a certain part of the population uh, who does, does not trust uh, the makeup of the vaccines. And uh, and we can see both, at least I can see both sides of that. Uh, do you see any uh, commonalities? I know they've, just like you, they've uh, censored and canceled Joe Rogan and people like that. They don't want people given the other viewpoint, and, and I have to say this to be honest with my, my audience, I, my personality is whenever I see someone trying to shut someone up, I'm suspicious of the person who's doing the censoring. Yep. And I would suggest to my audience, and I normally don't uh, get into this, that uh, if someone is trying to censor someone, distrust the censor first rather than the person being censored. I, that, that's just my general rule. And like you, I like to do a lot of reading and data and facts and things. And that's when I came up with that rule, because, you know, when you start digging behind the scenes uh, into the details, uh, a lot of times it looks like the person being censored 
the facts and data and things on their side. But uh, how do you see some of the current uh, controversy and discussion going back and forth on the vaccines? And uh, well, anyway, uh, do you see one thing I've learned, Lacey, is I think mm -hmm. the the government is and is not a trustworthy. Uh, servant of the public when it comes to safety and efficacy data about many medical products, including vaccines. Um, we've centralized the data collection. We, you know, we intimidate scientists. Uh, the National Institutes of Health, where we have Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, uh, they are the biggest buyers of scientific research in the world. And so if you're a practicing scientist in America today, you don't want to get on the wrong side of Tony right. Fauci or Francis Collins. Right. Otherwise, you're out of business. Right. Um, and we know, for example, that with COVID, um, Tony Fauci's institute was funding the lab that some people suspect was yeah. playing with fire and, right. and may have created the, the virus that and the COVID virus and, 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 and escaped. That's increasingly accepted as a plausible scenario. Right. And so if you're Tony Fauci and you might have been involved somehow, maybe you didn't fund the project that created the particular COVID, but you're funding the lab and, and you're involved in doing gain of function research, that's playing with fire. It is. Um, serious fire. Serious fire. And and if you know and if something bad happened, I mean something catastrophic happened, like millions of people dying of a leak of this of this virus what's your motive right you know it, it doesn't look like their motive was unvarnished looking for the truth they wanted to shut down the idea that it might have come from a lab right and so and so that's that that behavior that we see in COVID, and then vaccines are magical they are 100% safe and 100% effective. And we got a mandate that everybody gets all, 100% of the people need to get them and they're not allowed to question. And if they right. do question publicly, we will shut them up. Right. And that's the playbook. Yeah. And they're, yeah. you know, they ran it in autism and they've been pretty successful in shutting down the concerns over environmental causes of autism. But now here we're seeing it in COVID. And they're telling everybody, you, you're going to lose your, you get the shot, you're going to lose your job. You know, that's why we have the convoys in Canada and coming right. all over the world. We increasingly have pushback, but it's a very similar profile because the authorities, the public health authorities behave the same way. Right, right. And I've done some reading. We, we have to have you back because there's a lot more to this whole uh, COVID thing and, and this gain of, in fact, I'm going to go on record saying this gain of function research to me. I'm not an Ivy League scientist or anything. I don't need to be. I don't care if you got a PhD in science, but an Ivy League. It's just dumb. I mean, don't play with dangerous things. Don't experiment with ways to infect humans more effectively with a, a with a nasty virus that can kill you. Don't try to make it better. You know that's what they're doing. That's I had what a, they did. I had an interview with a reporter a few weeks ago on the subject and. My first thing with him, and even now, I, I just don't understand. Uh, uh, to me, we're going to get over this COVID thing. But to me, one of the main things we, be, should, we should be discussing is why are we doing this? Why are we doing this gain of function? And 
we should say we need to stop. The people need to insist that they, they stop. Because to me, the way I look at it, Mark, we are creating these little tiny microscopic invisible Frankensteins that can Absolutely. go out and have billions and trillions of other Frankensteins. Yeah. And we know eventually they're going to get out. So it's the dumbest thing in the world to me that we're even doing this. What and then what's dumb? even dumber, Lacey, yeah. is you take the people that gave you those Frankenviruses and maybe were careless with them and, mm -hmm. and maybe let them out. And I say maybe because, you know, well, yeah, you never know anything. A, with yeah, that's a, that's a debate. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, it, you got to say maybe. Um, yeah. and, but you take those people and then you put them in charge of, yeah. you know, of our economy. That's you know, if you're letting too. Tony Fauci, you know, you know, mandate masks for children and keep schools closed and shut down businesses because they're not essential. I mean, in what world do the the incompetent bureaucrats that may have get, given us the problem get to run the solution? Yeah. You know, and and we gave them. A runway for a couple of years and you know we're still they haven't shut it down the mandates haven't worked um nature has a way of escaping the brilliance of yep. human technology and you know it, it's thankfully it looks like it's running its course but i think we need to hold the the possible uh originators of this thing accountable we need to find out what happened and why and we need to get yeah. their vice grip off of all of our you know daily lives. This is a I good way for me to end up the way I was intending to start off about the Olympics. And I can't believe we even hold an Olympics in China. Uh, and when you read yeah. the history of world pandemics, uh, a lot of them starts in China. And what's uh, and I'm just going on record right now. Uh, what's amazing to me. That no one nowhere is holding China accountable for this, and I I have read s some places where you know Wall Street kind of like China, and I've also read that it's your a lot of the uh, scientists that are setting up these labs and and even the Wuhan lab are your Ivy League uh, cohorts that's going over to China and setting up these labs and things. So there's a lot of American involvement in there. And I'm just curious as why we're not being educated on the history of this thing. Number one and number two, uh, ending it like I started off and it's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, nobody's holding China accountable for any of this stuff and they keep releasing these things on the world. So there's something behind the scene that explains it. But if we get into it, Mark, we might be canceled. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're going to end it here. And I'm going to thank you for being on the podcast. I'd like to have you back and delve into some of these areas because, uh, like you, I, I like to go out and deal with data facts, numbers, and things like that, and not necessarily anecdotal and just really do research. And I think this is the most important thing. Wherever the facts take you, I – I don't mind being wrong uh, and totally off the, uh, out in left field or something. If the data proved me wrong, I'd be happy on that. So let's keep monitoring autism. I know there's a lot of parents out there impacted by this. Uh, and, and, and even more important than the parents, just a lot of uh, kids with a lot of potential that we need to get to the bottom of it. 
and the interesting thing about it, and maybe it's me, Mark, uh, why don't we hear anything reporting about autism? In the, I mean, you hardly ever see any articles, and it's almost like uh, families affected by autism, they're in their own little world and nobody else really paying any attention to what's going on there. Uh, I don't know how you explain it, but I'm not going to have you answer that because we're going for another five minutes. I'm going to once again, <laughs> I, I'm going to once again just thank you for being on and giving that uh, input and your background. Uh, wish you the best with your daughter, and we're going to talk some more. And once again, to all the uh, families out there who know an autistic child, uh, is there a place that you would recommend they start as far as resources? Uh, I know uh, maybe just Google parent groups and autism groups in their area or something like that. What would you, what would be one of the main things you lead these uh, uh, families uh, with as we. Good question, Lacey. Uh, you know, I know there are, some, I, I would find local parent groups. I know there's a group mm -hmm. called Taka that mm -hmm. uh, there's one in, you know, there's folks in Minnesota here. My daughter's 26. So I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm at, the right, other right. end of the journey, so I, right, I'm right. not a little bit out of touch, but okay. uh, that, that would well, be well, what, well, keep up the good work. Hey, I know you're you're serious about some of the issues now that you plan on. Uh, boy, you you're brave. Uh, stepping into the world of politics, uh, tell our audience what you're doing there and why you're doing it. Right, quick. Uh, I'm running for Congress in the third congressional district, Lacey. I, I've served the uh, the. Minnesota Republican Party a little bit. Uh, last year I was the treasurer and I, you know, uh, feel passionately about public health, rational health policy, economics, I'm a business guy. I do care a lot about cancel culture and, and the, the, the cultural trends that we're, we're seeing where you can't speak freely and, and uh, especially conservative voices are, are dealing with censorship. So I'm motivated to, getting deeper into the mix and and get into congress uh running against dean phillips in the in the third district that's that i just jumped into the race a month ago a little less than a month ago and it's a new journey well you're pretty close to my age and i think you remember senator mccarthy and going after the communists and how they blacklisted people and there's a, a general uh proverb that uh, abusers a victim or victims grow up to victim victimize others and where i'm going to there it's amazing to me that the people who are quote unquote victims of uh cancel culture back in the 50s because of mccarthy and communism search are yeah. the same people that's doing it to others now yeah I mean, it just that's yeah, that's an interesting. You would think that they would know their history, and know that someone has done that to them, and the last thing that they would want to do is be like that. But it's just yeah. people, man. That's okay. a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But thank you very much, Mark. Go have your dinner. Uh, we'll talk very soon. Enjoy Great the conversation. Chat. Great All right, chat, Lacey. Thanks for having me. All right. Okay, everyone. Uh, Thanks for watching us uh, this evening. Uh, had a little chat on autism there. And uh, there are resources out there for you to find. And and uh, you might just want to Google local parent uh, organizations in autism and start there. 
but it is a serious issue that we need to get to the bottom of, and hopefully we'll keep on working until we uh, find some solutions uh, to help reduce this uh, the occurrence of it. So good night, everybody. Tune in again next week. Bright lights. Go out to LaceyJohnson.com. Subscribe. Uh, click the bell for notification. Support the online store. Uh, donate to the podcast. Good night. we got a special guest for you next week that you'll be hearing about. Uh, we got the uh, world uh, champion boxer on, and he's done some great things. So uh, good night uh, from Bright Lights and Lacey Johnson. See you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>